Well, good morning again. We are in week four of a sermon series called The Science of the Soul. And if you have missed or you have forgotten, let me catch everybody up so that we are all operating and working from one consistent place. Now, the goal of this entire series could be summed up in this passage from the letter to the Romans. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. So that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and mature. There's a connection between how we renew our minds and how we discern what is good and pleasing and mature. There's a connection between emotional health and spiritual health between science and religion, and then this series we have been talking about how we actually make it so. So, in week one, this is where we went. In week one, we talked about how our mind is the mechanism that monitors all of the things that happen, our thoughts, our actions, our feelings, our bodily sensations, our memories, all of that exists within kind of the control of the mind. Now, The goal is to be aware of all of the disparate parts that are happening in our minds and bring them all together and integrate them. As we do that, as we have an integrated mind, that begins to form and shape our relationships. As our relationships are formed and shaped and become more integrated, that reinforces and integrates our mind, and on and on and on we go through this loop. My guess is you have found it particularly difficult to have difficult relationships and peace within your mind. Or the opposite. It is hard to have a troubled mind and peaceful relationships. There's a connection between the two. This concept is called interpersonal neuroscience. This is what we've been using to help us kind of get at some of these ancient Christian practices that allow us to renew our minds and integrate them so that we can transform our lives and transform our relationships. That was week one. Deep breath. Okay. Week two, we talked all about how we pay attention to what we pay attention to. And it was all about our focus because what we said was that the mind operates like a spotlight. And what we pay attention to, ultimately we become. Those things influence us, which is why parents who care about the movies your kids watch, the songs that they listen to, and the friends that they hang out with. And the same is true for us as adults. All of these things influence who it is that we become. So we have to pay attention to what we pay attention to. And then last week, we talked about how our memory shapes our future and how it is sometimes our implicit memories that we are not always conscious of that begin to subtly influence our current behavior, which leads to determining our future behavior and what we can do to begin to name and storytell our life experiences that start to integrate our implicit memories and our explicit memories, and how that manifests in our decisions today. Now, before we jump into what we are talking about today, I think we should do kind of a little exercise that everybody I need you to participate with. Um, As we do that, I'm going to ask that we get some air conditioning on in this building because I wore an extra sweater that I shouldn't have now, and I'm starting to regret that. And based on my kind of noticing of what's happening in the room, you are starting to regret some of your wardrobe choices as well. So if we can do that, then that would be awesome for everybody. Okay, 
and it'll make even more sense as we go here in a second. Now, I need everybody to hold up a hand. It doesn't matter which hand you hold up. Just hold up a hand. Now, this hand represents your brain. And here's how our brain is designed, and you can use your hand to identify it. Your wrist functions as your brain stem. Now, this is responsible for all of the involuntary actions that happen. Your, like, breathing, your heartbeat, your alertness in life all happens here in the brain stem. Now, take your thumb and lay it over your palm. I was practicing this earlier. My hand cramped up. Hopefully it doesn't happen to you. Now, this is the midbrain. If the brain stem is the lower brain and it kind of monitors all the involuntary functions of your body, your thumb represents your midbrain. And it is composed of your hippocampus and your amygdala. Now, we talked about the hippocampus last week. That's where memories are stored and processed. The amygdala is kind of what is used as kind of our radar detection for our life. It notices all of these little subtle things happening in the world, and it's kind of where primary emotion is first noticed and registered. Now take your fingers. These fingers form your prefrontal cortex. Fold them over your thumb. When your mind and brain is integrated, it operates like this. All the pieces are in connection and touch one another your prefrontal cortex is what's responsible for your conscious thoughts. It's your ability to reason from right and wrong. It's what helps you kind of process emotions, make decisions. It's kind of your executive center of your mind. Now, all of my doctors nod if I've got this right so far. Good. Okay. Thank you. Now, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're really angry or you're really frustrated or you're really stressed and it feels like your brain is shutting down because you don't have access to words. Maybe you use language like triggered or flooded. There's, you can tell that there is something happening in your brain. If you've gone to a lot of therapy, it's, you recognize that you are becoming dysregulated in this moment. What is happening is your prefrontal cortex is no longer functioning in relationship to your midbrain. Now, the way that I just did this with my fingers, we call this flipping our lid. <laughs> it's literally what's happening. Your prefrontal cortex is flipping away from, I mean, it's not actually moving, but it is disengaging from what's happening in your midbrain. When you do this, you don't have access to the same control, the same conscious choices, the same ability to navigate difficult emotions, particularly in the context of interpersonal relationships. So we say your lid is flipped. Okay, you can put your hands down now. Now, for all of our kids here today, there's a different way to think about this. If the hand model didn't work for you, you can think about it this way. A barking dog always makes the wise owl fly away. A barking dog, your lower brain, always makes the wise owl, your prefrontal cortex, fly away. It's a different way to think about it. Our barking dog is kind of our base, you know, brain stem and hippocampus and amygdala. And it's like the fight, flight, or freeze. You've heard of that before. This is what's happening in our lower brain. It's on alert. And when it's on alert and it starts barking, it disengages the wise thinking part of our brain our prefrontal cortex. Now, this is really important because where we are talking about today is in the midbrain. We are talking about the amygdala. And particularly, 
our emotions. Because of all of maybe the weeks, this is the one that has kind of the most direct, most obvious impact on our day-to-day lives. How we navigate life, how we respond to, process, become aware of our emotions, and then deal with, process, and become aware of the emotions of others. This is kind of the kind of the grease that greases the wheels of all of our lives. Our emotions drive us. And my guess is all of your interpersonal, either like connection or disconnection, is due to your emotions. The course of your life, for the most part, is largely determined by how well you were able to manage your emotions. And if you're kind of in the corporate world, you recognize that, you know, for the last several years, the dominant trend, kind of the dominant piece of conversation is not around aptitude or ability or even leadership. It is around what? Emotional intelligence. That's right. We are recognizing that more important than any other factor in life, what largely determines your success in any pursuit, whether it's relational or it's professional is how well you're able to manage your emotions and respond to and manage the emotions of others. So let's talk about what emotions are. Emotions are, the word comes from this kind of root that literally means to prepare to act. So think about it as emotion, evoke motion. That's what emotions are. They're kind of the alert system that tells your body that you might need to do something. You might need to act. You might need to respond to something in some way. And there's two kind of types of emotion that build upon and are related to one another. The first is primary emotion. Now, primary emotion uh, happens in the amygdala like we talked about. It is our radar system, our threat detection system. It is that barking dog that alerts us that danger might be near. It is what's connected to all of our sensory perceptions. You know, we have all of our five senses. It's connected to all of those. And our subconscious, nonverbal, physical behaviors. So, for example, there are some of you who are sitting there like this. And I'm trying to determine what your subconscious, nonverbal, physical behaviors are communicating, right? This is what happens. It's like we don't even recognize that we are reading rooms and reading situations and environments looking for, scanning for threat. All of that electrical activity in your brain that is happening all the time is really driven by emotion, trying to analyze what's happening in the moment. All of this happens, you know, faster than milliseconds and your brain starts to pick up on what's going on and then it tries to decide how I should react, should I be confused, puzzled, so forth. Now this leads to categorical emotion. Categorical emotion moves from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. This is when we're in sustained states of experiencing primary emotion. So if you see something that seems strange to you and you and you kind of have this quizzical look on your face, and you kind of furrow your brow, and you cross your eyes, because you're trying to determine what exactly is happening. The longer you stay in that place, 
you might start to recognize that you are unsure about what's happening or you might start to anticipate danger but not be aware that you're anticipating danger. But then when you become aware that you're anticipating danger, it starts to register as fear and then you start to express fear and realize, oh my gosh, I'm afraid. Okay, let me give you maybe a little a simpler example. Uh, sometimes people make comments because I like to stand on the edge of the stage like this. Like, I'm always worried that you're going to fall off. For some reason, my whole life, well, as long as I've been on a stage, I like to stand with my toes off the edge of the stage. Now, if, for example, I was to slip off this stage and fall, you would all have an initial primary emotional response. It would be, <gasps> or you would have some kind of nonverbal reaction. You would make a face, you would lean up, because you would recognize that if something has happened, you have been made aware of some stimuli. Now, what happens next in primary emotion is once you recognize the stimuli, then you kind of assess and appraise, like, what's going on and how you should respond to that stimuli. And for some of you, it would depend on if I made any sounds, how long I laid there, if I felt, you know, if I stayed there, if somebody got up to attend to me, or if I just popped back up to my feet to look on my face, if I made some funny comment, all of those things would start to kind of inform how you should respond. Now let's pretend, for example, that I landed wrong, blow out an ACL, and I'm down on the ground holding my knee. At some point, you would shift from primary emotion to categorical emotion because you would recognize that, oh, there's a problem. I feel Sad, I feel concerned. That was really funny. Oh my gosh, he's still on the floor. You would have some awareness of some categorical emotion. Now, most of our life is impacted by our categorical emotions. We actually call these, for the most part, we call these feelings. And for some of us, we either have a love or a hate relationship with feelings. Maybe you, you grew up in an environment where feelings were never discussed. Or maybe you grew up in an environment where it felt like that was all you talked about was feelings. Very few of us grew up in an environment or find ourselves in an environment that seems to have a proper balance and kind of a healthy understanding of feelings, how to navigate them, how to use them, how to respond to them and yourself and other people. Now, in the world of feelings, there's a couple of different ideas. Um, some people say that there's like five core feelings. If you watched the movie Inside Out, that's kind of the, kind of the model that they ascribe to. Some people say there's six. Some people say there's eight. But it doesn't really matter what we identify as core feelings. Because typically what ends up happening is people say, well, there are these core feelings. And then there are kind of secondary and tertiary feelings that are less intense versions of the core feelings. Now, if you're like, Stephen, I have no idea what you're talking about. Perhaps you've seen a feeling wheel. There, feeling wheel. Now, this one operates off of six core feelings. Sad, mad, scared, joyful, powerful, peaceful. And from those, there are less intense feelings that are related to the core feeling. So, if you go off the orange category that says scared as a primary feeling, you see rejected, confused, helpless, submissive, insecure, anxious. Maybe further removed from the core feeling of scared, you have bewildered, discouraged, insignificant, weak, foolish, embarrassed. Now, 
For some of you, you see this and you're like, there is no chance I have all of those feelings inside of me. And there are others of you who are like, oh my God, I feel all of those every single day. (laughs) Or you're sitting next to somebody and go, oh my God, they feel those, all of those every single day. Now, I'm painting kind of broad strokes here, but for most of us, our response to this whole list of emotions and feelings is either they're unmentionable or they're unmanageable. That's typically how we interact with our feelings. It's like either I don't know how to access them, I don't have words to name them, I'm unsure at all what I'm even feeling. How many of you uh, are in a relationship where the person that you're in a relationship with will come home at the end of the day and say, hey, how are you feeling? Or they'll ask you, hey, like, what's going on right now? What are you feeling? And you're like, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm feeling. Maybe I'm not feeling anything. Or maybe you're in a relationship with somebody where they seem to have one feeling that they can name, and that's anger. Like, how are you feeling? I'm angry. Well, you seem to be, I'm always angry. I'm just, that, I'm just always, that's the one emotion that I have is anger and frustration. This is hard because we aren't taught how to identify, how to name, and then how to respond to the feelings that we have inside of us, which is why tools like these are so incredibly helpful. I first came in contact with the feeling wheel in therapy. My therapist was like, how are you feeling? And I'm like, I have no idea. Fine. She's like, fine's not a feeling. I'm like, no, but I feel fine. So here, use the feeling wheel. I don't know. This is not an intuitive process. We're not taught to be aware of all of the feelings that go on inside of ourselves. Or you have access to so many feelings and you are consciously aware of so many things that are happening. It feels like this kind of chaotic, stormy sea that you don't know how to manage. And oftentimes you find yourself having conflict and challenges in your relationships, not because you don't know how to access your feelings, but because you don't know how to control and to manage your feelings. You have these kind of emotional outbursts or you kind of seem to be overcome and overwhelmed with feelings and you don't know how to get your arms around them and manage them and people around you start to kind of do the kind of the hands-up approach because they have to walk around on eggshells with you because they're not really sure what emotion you're going to be feeling when and how big or how small it's going to be. And if they're confused, certainly you're confused. All of this happens in our lives every single day. So the question is, like, if we have all of these feelings, whether we realize it or not, like, why and how do we manage them? Now, for some of us, we grew up in, you know, a particularly difficult environment where we were told that we can't trust our feelings, that they're unreliable, that um, if you're a Christian, that you can't pay attention to your feelings. And let me just speak to that for a second, because uh, while feelings don't have to determine and govern your life, feelings are always reliable. They're informing you of something. They are always communicating something. It may not be the conclusion that you're drawing or the accurate conclusion that you've drawn about what you're feeling, but they're not something that we should talk other people out of. This can particularly happen with parents and children. The child says, I'm feeling 
sad. It's okay, you shouldn't feel sad. And then you try to reason with them as to why what they're feeling shouldn't. And it's done with love and care and attention because you're trying to help them feel something other than they're feeling. You're trying to move them on the wheel from sad to happy. But what you end up doing is invalidating and causing them to distrust or misunderstand what it is that they're feeling inside. Your feelings are always a reliable indicator that something is going on. It, this is kind of where the, the barking dog analogy breaks down because some of us, we have dogs that bark at everything and it's not a reliable indicator. I have a dog that when she barks, it's like there's definitely something going on because she only you know, occasionally barks. But anytime you have a feeling, it is communicating something. The kind of the learning here is how do we begin to one, pay attention to the fact that we have them and then begin to listen to what they might be pointing us towards and then use that to figure out how we respond to what they're suggesting instead of just reacting to this base wave of energy or emotion that we feel. Now, what I think is so interesting about Scripture is that if you take the whole of the Bible, by far the longest book of the Bible is the book of Psalms. Psalms are our words to God, and they are filled with so many emotions that are noticed and that are named. Now, I think the people who compiled the Bible together, it didn't just fall from the sky like it is, but the people who compiled the Bible together really intentionally put the Psalms in the middle. If you've ever been like, all right, God, what should I read today? You just opened your Bible, likely it was to the Psalms partly because it's so long and partly because it's in the middle of your Bible. But when you think about it, when we begin to have awareness of, we're able to notice and then name our emotions, it is this integration in the middle of our brain. This is where the Psalms find themselves in Scripture, right in the middle. And so let me show you just one example of a psalm and the way that the psalmist does such a good job naming what is going on. Because this idea of feeling things is not new to the 21st century. We have been designed to feel emotions and to have emotions that communicate to us about what's going on in our world and what's going on inside of us. And what the psalmist does here is they name what is happening. So let me show you. This comes from Psalm 13. Maybe you've heard this one before. How long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? This emotion of maybe feeling forgotten, abandoned. How long will you forget me, Lord, forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I be left to my own wits, agony filling my heart daily? Look at me. Answer me, Lord, my God. There's kind of like this impatience, this frustration, anger here in this moment. Restore sight to my eyes. Otherwise, I'll sleep the sleep of death. Glitchy technology. Hey, Ian, can you help me out here? Thank you. I'm going to stop touching the remote that I have. I'll sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I won. 
So here, again, maybe hopelessness, futility. Next slide. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Yes, I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. And so there's kind of this move at the end that like, God, here's all the stuff. Here are all the things that I'm feeling. I'm feeling forgotten and abandoned and scared and lonely and frustrated and annoyed and resentful, hopeless in moments. And God, I'm, there's still a little bit of hope and a little bit of trust that you are present and that you see me, that you can handle all of these emotions and that you're faithful to me. I think one of the biggest obstacles to our prayer life, because the Psalms are just written prayers, I think one of the biggest obstacles to our prayer life is because we don't feel like we can be honest with God. Like we have to protect God from the hard emotions that we have, the big emotions that we have. We are so polite in our prayers. We have all of this stuff going on inside of us that we feel and we know because of the circumstances in our lives. And we're like angry and mad and just irritated. And we're like, well, God, if you could just help us, that'd be great. I mean, if you're not busy or doing anything. I think God wants us to pray like the Psalms. Where are you? Like, are you just going to stay up there forever? Are you ever going to come down here and do something? I have been waiting. I'm tired of waiting. Some of you just got so uncomfortable right now (laughs) because of your primary emotions. Yeah, this nonverbal behavior. You're like, I would never pray to God that way. Maybe you should try it. Maybe that's what's the disconnect. What if you just got really honest with God about what it is that's going on inside of you? What if you begin to name, even if you had to pray with the feeling wheel? You can find them online, just Google feeling wheel. You just pray with it. What am I feeling? Because here's what happens. And this is how we begin to reintegrate our brain. This is how all of this stuff kind of comes together and we get to the place of renewing our minds. Is you, you got to name it. Maybe first you have to start to notice what's happening. For those of you who are like, I don't feel things. That is untrue. You do. You just don't notice what they are. If you're like, no, I really don't feel that much. I promise you, you're not a different category of human than the rest of us. This is the camp that I was in for the longest time. It's only through a lot of therapy and a lot of work that I'm starting to begin to notice like three feelings as opposed to like one. (laughs) I've grown a lot in the last 10 years. There's hope for all of us. But what if you just begin to notice, okay, what am I feeling? Like, What is going on? And it may be connected to thoughts, it may be connected to memories, it may be connected to images that you have about things that have happened in your life or that you are afraid of happening in the future. That's okay, all of that is tied and kind of tangled up together. But as you begin to notice and as you begin to name it, you have the opportunity instead of reacting to it, to begin to respond to it. There is a whole category of emotions that the Psalms contain. And and so if you are struggling to identify emotions, sometimes it's easier to identify them as they're being expressed by other people. This is where poetry is really helpful 
the Psalms function the exact same way. Check out just some of these emotions that are found in these Psalms. If you are feeling this way, if you're feeling fearful or discouraged, lonely, guilty, or anxious, those are where the Psalms are. Let's stay on this for a second, Ian. Fearful, discouraged, lonely, guilty, anxious. Okay, going on to the next slide. Or if you're feeling angry, resentful, doubtful, happy, forsaken, or grateful. My guess is there's a psalm for every emotion and feeling on that feeling wheel. There's likely a psalm for every situation that we find ourselves in. And so perhaps for you, the first place is just to maybe read a psalm a day. Start to get back in touch with, one, types of feelings. And two, starting to become comfortable putting language and words around naming those feelings to God. It starts with naming them to God, naming them to yourself. And as you start to get your arms around naming those feelings, it starts to become easier to identify those feelings in other people. There's a direct connection between your own awareness of your emotional state and your ability to recognize the emotional state of others. In those moments when your lid flips, it is hard for you to have the sensitivity and the awareness to start to process and take in all of the nonverbal cues that the person that you're in some disagreement or some state of dysregulation with is sending. You are flooded by your own emotions. And so the way that you reintegrate your mind, the way that you renew your mind, is to begin to notice and to begin to name those things that you're feeling inside of you, which will then allow you to become reconnected to your prefrontal cortex, which allows you to start to better process the emotions of others in your life. Another practice that you can institute besides reading the Psalms is to begin to journal. This is maybe kind of the next level from there, is to begin to start to write down what you're feeling or just to start writing. It doesn't even have to be with a prompt in mind. For some of you, this will feel really foreign. What I promise you will happen is stuff will begin to bubble up and stuff will begin to emerge and uncover that you didn't realize was there. This is how we start to gain access to and reintegrate our minds is just put pen to paper and write whatever happens. You could even start out, I don't know why I'm writing to, but Stephen told me to write and so here I am, I'm writing. This seems so silly and dumb. And now you're starting to be in touch with the feeling of foolishness. See, it's so easy the way that this works. And then the last step, if we're building and stacking these on, would be to start to begin to share your feelings with other people. And for some of you, I've just lost you. You're like, never, I'm out. <laughs> but my guess is you sharing feelings with other people is similar to why people stop coming to church. It's not because they don't believe in God, but because of an experience that they had where somebody hurt them, somebody betrayed them, somebody used their experience against them. This is what happens to us with feelings, whether it happened in your childhood or it happened in a very profound and important relationship, your feelings were leveraged against you or they were invalidated or they were never attended to or recognized or named or 
the feelings of a caregiver were dominant, and so you weren't even allowed to have feelings because of how important their feelings were and their inability to manage their own feelings. All of this happens in so many different ways. And so you're like, there's no chance I'm going to share how I'm feeling. But like I said at the beginning of the service, this is why groups and being in community, particularly in the context of church, is transformative. Being in a group will change your life because it gives you the space to begin to process, to wrestle with, to name, to recognize in others the feelings that are happening inside of you. There's this great quote that I'll end on from St. Augustine. He says, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. And if we want to begin to know ourselves, it starts with our feelings. This is how we begin to build a relationship with ourselves, with God, and with others. And my prayer is that we will start to put these practices into effect in our lives as we begin to reintegrate our brains, take control of our emotions, and to live a life of abundance that is promised to us. Friends, let me pray for our time together. We'll invite the band to come up and lead us in one last song. Gracious God, it is in this moment we come to you with a whole lot of emotions and feelings. Maybe some known, mostly unknown. God, and we ask that you invite us into deeper communion with you so that we feel safe being vulnerable, that we begin to become aware of what is happening in the seas inside of us, and we begin to trust that you are always with us. God, help us to learn how to recognize and to name and to respond to our emotions and the emotions of others so that we can have deeper relationships with you and with them. We pray this in your name. Amen.